For our scripture reading today, we'll be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So in you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you, sh- do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness your, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. And verse 12 through 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when, God's, when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Thank you, Jordan, for reading the word of the Lord to us this morning. I'm looking at the time, in case you're wondering, and uh, I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but we'll do our best. Um, we're in a series uh, where we're going through the, the letter to Romans. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Romans. He wanted to have a harvest among them, and he also wanted to use them as a strong church partner for him to go even further in taking the gospel to Spain. And so he writes this letter to sort of flesh out his gospel. What is the good news? That's what gospel means, good news. What is the good news that he's proclaiming? And um, so he wanted to flesh it out for the church that's made of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Gentile means not Jewish. They're just not Jewish. And, um, and so he's writing this letter to them. And um, I remember, so we, we've ta- called the series so far, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And uh, first week I got to get up and do the good. And then last week, uh, Kurt was up and he said, I'm up doing the bad, but don't worry, the ugly is coming. So, words hurt, Kurt. I just want to say that. <laughs> so, here I am. It's the week where it's the ugly week for me. Uh, what do we mean by the good and the bad and the ugly? Well, we're, we're trying to talk a little bit about, um, again, and Paul's talking to them. He's talking to Jewish people who had a long religious tradition, Gentile people who are sort of new to this uh, teaching about Jesus, and even talking about the people they hope to reach someday. In some of the translations, it refers to some of the people who are out there in, this, in you know, maybe the, in Spain, you know, as the barbarians, you know, or the, you know, they're the uncivilized, right? And that was actually in the Roman world, that was common to think of, you know, those who were in Spain, you know, or even the Gauls in France or the Germanic tribes up in Germany and especially the English any, or whoever they were in England at the time, the Angles or the Sacks, you know, they... Barbarians compared to the civilized Romans. 
right? Oh, for sure, says someone. <laughs> right? So, so he's saying, I'm obligated to all of these groups. That's what he says. I'm obligated to all of these groups to bring them the gospel. It doesn't matter how they're seen in society, how they're perceived. I'm obligated to all of them to bring them the gospel, this good news. And what is the gospel about? It's like, it's about how you can become righteous in God's sight. Now, righteous is a word we don't, we, probably it's better translated right with God, right? How to become right with God. And that's what the gospel is about. It's saying, how do we become right with God? In, in chapter one, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I'm not ashamed of this good news, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the New Living Translation, there's this line in verse 17. It says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. How can we made, be made right in this sight? And the first three chapters, it's interesting to try to re- take a letter in chunks like we're doing because you can get it really out of context, right? You read a chunk and you go, well, that's what this whole letter is about. Well, that's not, there's, it's a longer thing. And um, especially chapters 1 through 3, you probably shouldn't just read one by itself or two by itself or, or three by itself. It's a continuous thought, chapters one through three. So if you want to get the continuous argument, and so it's even hard for us as guys who are communicating this to go, oh, wow, you've given me a chunk. I have a chunk to speak on, but I really want to go all the way to the end of chapter three because that's where the full uh, explanation of the thought is, is revealed. But I'm going to try not to steal too much from Kurt, who's coming back next week, week to uh, do more out of chapter three. But Paul is laying out a legal case. He's laying out a legal case, like a prosecutor. He's, he's basically saying, um, come to court, or you've been summoned to court. And it's almost like his listeners are going, oh, summoned to court. Why? Is someone on trial? And they come and they go, I wonder who's on trial. And it's like, I'm going to just lay it out this way. I heard it uh, through um, someone else laying it out this way. I think it's very helpful. It's like there's three groups coming to court. And the first group is the wicked. And that's a term used in this, the wicked. You know, everybody knows they're bad. You know those people? Everybody knows they're bad. And so it's like, imagine a courtroom, and the, the wicked, they sort of slink in, and they, they, you could see their, you know, it's just written all over their faces. They're guilty, right? They come, and they line up behind the defendant's table, and that's where they come and sit. And then there's a second group, and that's been described already in some of the passages we've looked at, is it's the godless so in chapter 1, it talks about the godless and the wicked. So the godless come in, and, and now they're, they come and sit at the back of the court. They're like, well, what? Ah, we're here for entertainment purposes. I mean, we don't even believe in God, and we, we're just going to sit at the back and just, you know, see how this, uh, this happens. And they're sort of smirking, and, you know, you know, this isn't about us. We'll see how this court case goes. And then in comes the religious. And the religious, well, they don't sit at the back, and they don't sit at the defendant's table. They confidently stride in there to sit in the jury, jury box. In fact, one of them sort of goes, hmm, maybe I should sit up at the judge's station, but no, I'll stay here. But you can see it on their faces. They're confident and maybe a little bit smug, and then the trial begins. So these are the, this is Paul speaking to a variety of audiences, but he's speaking about a variety of people. And there's a very interesting thing in the passage I've been given to talk about in chapter 2. The passage Kurt was talking about last week. 
How many were here and heard Kurt's excellent message last week? It really was an excellent, or a very difficult passage, all about the wrath of God. That's difficult to talk about. Uh, the wrath of God. I've, my summary, this is how I summed it up in my mind when I was over and hearing his excellent teaching, was that God's wrath is being poured out. That's what it says in uh, Romans 1.18. God's wrath is being poured out or revealed against the godless and the wickedness of people. So there's two of the categories of the three people that we talked about who suppress the truth of God by their wickedness. And Kurt went on to talk about the, that there's, you know, the evidence for God's divine nature is in creation. You look at creation, you go, whoa, something must have built, made this, designed this. There's, there's things that sort of point us to the fact that there is a God and that we're without excuse to disregard him or to, to refuse to thank him or, to re, or refuse to um, honor him. So there, this, is, this is a thing that's, uh, that's happening where people are, are disregarding God. But Paul, in, in chapter 1, he's talking about the godless and the wicked, and they've, they've uh, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols, and so then God gives them over to, to uh, uh, futile thinking and a, and, a, and a darkened heart and um, uh, shameful lusts. Those are all the things that God gives. He just lets them have their way. You know, it's sort of like they're not saying, God, your will be done. My will be done, God. And God says, okay, I'll give you over to what you want. And it ends really badly for them. And it doesn't go well. And it's ugly. And it's a mess. And so if, the, if this is letter is being writ, read in Rome about the godless and the wicked, you know, they've already got their guilty, guilty verdicts in the courtroom. Paul, the prosecutor, has just laid out the case against them. And so if you're a very religious, you know, Jew, reading this, you're probably feeling pretty good. You're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what they deserve. And then chapter 2 comes, and you realize that you have been set up. You have been set up. Paul sets it up absolutely brilliantly, because when he gets to chapter 2, oops, This is what he begins with. He says, okay, let me give you another little hint, thing that helps you. In chapter 1, he, he talks about they, 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 the godless, the wicked, they, they, they. He's talking about other people. Then in chapter 2, he switches from they to you. It gets really personal. He says, you, therefore, religious types, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for what, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? So, I mean, I, I painted the picture. Here the jury box is full of religious people thinking, we've come to pass judgment. And they go, wait a second. We're guilty too? Paul is saying that we are also under God's judgment? And, now, and verse 4 tells what this reveals about them. It says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? He's saying, when you... Look at others, 
the godless and the wicked in this category, just using the terminology Paul used. When you look that way and you say, that's right, they deserve judgment, but you fail to see that you yourself are also guilty before God and also deserving of judgment, you are showing contempt for God's kindness. You're showing contempt for God's kindness in your life. So here's the... I mean, this is where chapter 3 is going to go. We'll hear more of it in chapter 3. But basically, the, the summary at the end of all of this is that we're all guilty. We're all deserving of judgment. And um, have you ever been at that place where it's like you know you're not right with someone? And we were talking about being right with God. But have you experienced that interpersonally, like with human relationships? You just know you're not right with that person. And maybe, maybe, in your experience, you knew it was your fault. And you feel so bad. You see them, and you wish there's something you could do, and how can I ever make this right, or how could I ever uh, work this out? And, but you realize there's nothing you can do. And it's just such an awful feeling inside. that you say, Our relationship's not good, and I don't know how to fix it, and I'm pretty sure I can't fix it. It's an awful experience. But that is the human condition with God. Is that we are not right with God. We aren't right with God. Our sin, humanity's rebellion against God. We have a sin nature that it's natural for us to be self-seeking. And so, we're not right with God. Now, we do everything to avoid this. It's funny because you're reading, I, even as I was reading Paul in, in the first parts of Romans, it's like he's going at great lengths to say that we're under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. We're not right with God. He's saying it again and again and again. It's like, Paul, can't you get on to some sunnier topics? Can't you get on to the good stuff? And it's like, and the reason I believe that he doesn't get on to the good stuff is because we reject this. We push back against this. We try to avoid this at all costs. I was reading, um, I was reading a, just a, a little bit of an article, and it was about this um, professor at, uh, a, at Boston College. Just read it real quick. The name of the article is Faith and Therapy by William Kilpatrick, who is a professor in the education department at Boston College. And he wrote, one of the most destructive consequences of carelessly mixing therapy with faith is a diminished sense of sin. So just follow what he's saying. The best evidence that this has already happened in the Catholic Church, I think he is maybe a Catholic, is the tremendous drop-off in the practice of confession of the last 30 years. When we couple this with the nearly 100% communion turnout in most parishes, we have to conclude that most parishioners don't have a strong consciousness of sin. So they're not going to confession anymore, but they're all coming uh, to Mass, Right? which normally you don't go to Mass if you've got sin. You need to deal with it, that sort of thing. Um, they seem to have been so schooled in the gospel of self-acceptance that they can't think of any sins they need to confess. So a colleague, he's writing, at Boston College told me a story that reinforces the point. He once asked members of his philosophy class to write an anonymous essay about a personal struggle over right or wrong good and evil. And most of the students, however, were unable to complete the assignment. Why, he asked. Well, 
They said, and apparently this was said without irony, we haven't done anything wrong. We can't do the assignment. You're asking us to talk about a time when we did something wrong, but we have never done anything wrong. So we can see a lot of self-esteem here, but little self-awareness. The absence of a sense of sin seems strange when one considers that most of these students have had years of Catholic schooling. So now don't, I'm not saying that you know, the Catholics are doing a bad job in this area. I think it's just a cultural thing that we have that's happening in our world today. Um, I'm gonna, let me illustrate it. My daughter, for a long, like she had a phrase that she would say all the time when she, a few years ago, and it was so cute, we always still say it, not in front of her. But she would say, when she saw something that was inappropriate or wrong or she didn't approve of it, she'd say, that not good. That not good. So she was just little, eh? That not good. And so we always say that when, you know, she's not listening. We all like, that not good, you know? Uh, so that not good. So she knew. She knew some things were wrong. And she would point them out in her world. And, uh, and then lately, though, her f- go-to um, phrase is this one. She'll say something that maybe isn't that good. But then she'll say, but that's okay. But that's okay but that's okay, but that's okay. You know, she just says it like, so she, those are the two phrases, and I think, I love it, because it's making my point here. I think when we look at others in this day and age, there is loads of judgmentalism. There's loads of that not good when we look at other people. Even if you're super polite Canadian and you're that not good, you only say after you talk to that person, you don't say it to them. You may say it to your friend or your spouse. But I think there's lots of that not good in us for others. But I think when it comes to our own areas, we're saying, but that's okay. But that's okay. And so that's why college students can come to an assignment like, tell us something you've done wrong. And they say, but I've never done anything wrong. Yet if you ask them, tell us something else someone else has done wrong, they'd write thousands of words. It would be an easy assignment. That's the human condition. And Paul is going after this with the religious ones. In this case, it happens to be the religious Jews. He's saying, you can see, you look at the Gentiles and you can see lots of things to criticize. You see uh, the, those who are clearly, everyone would agree, are doing wicked things. And you can see lots of reasons to, judgment, to, to judge them. But you don't think you need to repent. You're just as lost. You're just as much in need of a righteousness, not of your own, but from others. I'm going to tell you right now, in our culture, judgmentalism paired with self-righteousness is, it's the thing of the day. That not good, but that's okay. And Paul's going after that. He's going after that. It's because we resist it. He's writing it again and again. We're all under the judgment of God. The wrath of God is rightly poured out. Now, the good news we heard last week is that Jesus steps in and he, uh, he takes the cup of God's wrath and he drinks it. What we should have paid, he, he takes upon himself for us. You know, I was just thinking about the judgment of God And the love of God and how we work these things together. You know, Paul, he says at the beginning of Romans, he says that his letter is written to all of those in Rome who are loved by God. 
and call to follow him. That's what he says. I'm writing this letter to everyone who's loved by God. Then he goes into this setup about wrath and judgment, and God sees what you do in secret. And you need to repent. And you need to humble yourself before God. And if there's two things that just really stand out in the things that in these first few chapters for me, and these, these are them. We are guilty before God. We are rebellious people. We have, we've turned and gone our own way. We've not gone God's way. But the other thing is that we are loved by God. We are loved by God. Let me, I'm going to end with this verse here. Exodus 34, 6. Exodus 34, 6. In the New International Version, it says this. It's, it's God passing in front of Moses, and he's telling, him about, he's telling Moses about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Uh, I was reading Sam Alberry, and he was referencing this verse, and he said two things about it that I thought were quite remarkable. First was, he said, this is the most repeated verse in the Bible. I'm not saying the, mo- the most repeated command in the Bible, I think, is do not fear. But this is the most repeated verse. Author after, biblical author after, especially in the Old Testament, will take this phrase of what God himself said to Moses, and they use it in worship, they use it in teaching, they communicate it again and again. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. In other words, God's, God is slow to put into gear anger, wrath, and judgment. Uh, he's already got love for you in gear right now if you turn towards him. That's, his, that's, that's what he majors on. Uh, he will judge sin. He will judge those who re- re- reject him, as he should. But his main mode of operation is to love. His main thing is to love. And so here's Paul. He's writing to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And then he goes into the bad news so that the good news will stand out. So God is not slow to love. He's slow to anger. It's his love that already has the engine running. It's his love that it's always ready to go at a moment's notice. In contrast, his anger, it has to be worked up over time. And the two do not occupy the same place in his affections. Love abounds where anger doesn't. It is love he possesses in boundless measure, not anger. And his love is on display in our lives by his patience. And so when Paul says, the kindness of God, the point of it is, his kindness and his patience, both of those things he says in that one verse, are meant to lead you to repentance. You know, if you stood up today and you just said, well, I don't believe in God, and if he's real, he should just strike me down right now. Oh, he didn't. He's not real. I'm going to tell you, you can't exhaust the patience of God like that. He is patient with you. He's wanting you to come to repentance. He's wanting you to recognize that you're not right with God, but you could be made right with God. And the means to be made right with God, he supplied. God saw us in our helplessness. We, could not be, we couldn't live up to God's perfect standard because of our sin nature. 
because of our self-seeking, because of making our world all about ourselves, because of judging our neighbor with one measurement and then letting ourselves off with another measurement. And so in his mercy, he sends Jesus. And Jesus takes our place. He, come, he, becomes, he lives a perfect, obedient life, which we couldn't do. He dies a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. He takes the blame and the shame of your sin and my sin on himself so that we can have an exchange in exchange that we can have the righteousness of God, the right standing with God, not only that, that we can become the righteousness of God. So that we're not clothed in our failure, our sin, our selfishness when we stand before a holy, perfect God. We're actually clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the mercy of God for each one of us who is under judgment, who's been found guilty in the courtroom. It's the judge himself who takes off his robe and steps down from his place behind the bench and says, you've done the crime, but I'll take the punishment. And all we're asked to do is to trust him, believe in him, Trust him with our lives. We aren't asked to do a whole, there isn't a whole litany of things that must be done to earn that. There's no litany that would ever work. We could never, by our works, be right with God. But it's faith that God is looking for. He's faith. It's people who believe in him. And now we're trusting him. And we need his forgiveness. We need his leadership. And we're calling out for it in repentance. God, forgive me. I am a sinner. And I need you to save me. Would you stand with me this morning? I mean, this morning is, it could be a first day for you in a walk with God that's a whole new adventure. Maybe you just, you're here and you're saying, I, I am, this resonates. I mean, it's, if it's resonating, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. I think in the natural, we'll totally resist this message. We'll resist that I'm guilty before God. We'll resist uh, that we need the forgiveness of God or his leadership in our lives. We'll resist that in the natural. But if this was resonating with you this morning, then God is at work in you. And you better not miss the moment of what he's doing. So I just advise you right now, if you're right there and you're saying, I, I recognize I am guilty before God. My mode of operation is, it is self-seeking. I need him. I need his forgiveness and his leadership in life. You can have that today. Now I'm just going to pray. Just lead you in a little prayer. But it's not the little prayer that has the power. It's your heart repentant before God. Say, God, I need you. I'm a sinner and I need you to come along and bring forgiveness to what I've done. And I need you to lead me in the future as well. Let's pray. Lord, we all come before you. Uh, based on the same criteria. We were guilty before you. But you provided a way to be right with you through Jesus. So right now, I just I want to lead those who maybe are, are, are wanting to make that step, take that step of faith, or just they're already in their hearts. The step of faith has begun, but they just want to solidify it. So if you're in that place right now, just repeat after me. You know, Lord, thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you that he came to die in my place. I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I needed his forgiveness, and I thank you that he offers it. I needed your leadership, and I thank you that you offer it. And so, would you lead me, and would you guide me? Would you direct my life? I want to live my life for you. I want to live my life with you. Thank you for your forgiveness and your leadership in my life. In the name of Jesus. Amen.